Good morning, friends. Good to see all you guys. Um, guys in the annex over there in Fellowship Hall, hi. Zoom in so they can see. I hate for them to be in the cheap seats. But even my own wife and granddaughter are in the cheap seats today. So there you go. Fair is fair. Um, I want you guys to open your Bible to 1 Corinthians 15. Or if you have a Bible app, just open it to 1 Corinthians 15 and hold that place. But first, I'd love to share some Easter pictures. They're a little embarrassing, but I want to share them with you. Let's see if they come up. Yes, here I am as little Lord Fauntleroy in my Buster Brown suit. Let me just tell you, mothers, I love you. I've learned so much to appreciate children and all you go through. But can I give you a pointer? If you have twins, do not dress them in sailor suits, okay? That is, a lot of therapy went to that. Um, and then you notice I have very large ears. It was so bad when I was a swimmer, my sister was all state and I wasn't, and they pinpoint the problem. It was my ears that were creating drag. So um, next picture, please. This is probably my favorite Easter picture right here. Now, you'll see my twin sister, Leslie, who's awesome. She got the brains and the looks in the family. And then you'll see a guy that has bruises all over his face. Now, um, great uniform, too. Love the knickers. Love the little uh, shorts. Aren't you glad your parents didn't do that to you today? But what happened is um, I used to run to get the newspaper every day. We had a small house, small lot. But I would run from my front door all the way to the mailbox, get the paper, do a pivot, and run as fast as I could. And when I got to the steps like this, my mom would stop the stopwatch. And so I kept getting faster and faster. But then I saw a race on TV. It might have been the Olympics. And so some of the runners, when they get to the end, you know what they do to get ahead of the next guy? They lean, they lean. And I'm thinking, well, if a little leaning's good, a lot of leaning's better. So, see, see what's happening now, even I can barely walk. So, what happened is that when I did the extreme lean to get the faster time, my feet came out from underneath me, and I was like a rocket headed for two brick stairs. And let me tell you, my face met them at full force, and I've never experienced so much pain in my life. I'm going to put it right up there with childbirth, ladies. I'm just saying. <laughs> um, anyway, so that's that. But the reason I'm showing you these pictures with big ears, knicker suit, little Lord Fauntleroy, is I understand that there are people uh, that are in church today, and you're like, oh, my gosh, I wonder if the wall's going to cave in on me or the roof's going to follow me. I haven't been to church forever. And what I want to say is just relax, just relax. I mean, I'm the guy with big ears and wore a sailor suit. If I could do that and come to church, you can be here and relax. I just want you to calm down and realize this is a safe place to be. All right, so let's go to the text itself. Easter is all about what? I mean, really, it's the heart of the Christian faith. It's about a person, and that person is? It's always the right answer in church, Jesus. And it's not only about a person, but it's also about an event. If this event didn't happen, then Jesus was just a liar or a crazy person. But he claimed to forgive sin. He, he claimed uh, to be God. You've seen the Father, you've seen me. But also he promised that he was going to be raised fr from the dead. And so the whole Christian faith is either true or not true. It's either true or not true. It all falls on the truth of was Jesus raised from the dead or not. This has particular importance this year for me uh, because during the COVID season, I buried my mom. And I have to say, she had, she had cancer, and she was suffering, and I wouldn't have kept her one more day. But I can tell you, if you've ever had to bury somebody you love, 
the question, the, the, the reality of the resurrection becomes incredibly important. It's no longer a philosophical question or a religious thing you do on Easter. It is so important when you see your loved one dead and you're wondering, Jesus, is what you said about the dead in Christ being raised, is that true? When you claim to forgive my sins, is that true? When you said, I'll never leave you or forsake you, I'm with you, is that true? And it all hinges on an event, and that event is the resurrection. Did God the Father raise the Son or not? And so we go to the text, and it starts in verse uh, chapter 15. He says, now, and he's writing to a church. Who's he writing to? What's the church here? Remind me. Corinth, right. And um, they were very spiritual, very spiritual people, so spiritual. They spoke in tongues. They prophesied. They did many things that were great. But they also were a very carnal church. You know, not everything that's in the spirit is always holy, right? And so what we found out in the church in Corinth is there are terrible divisions in the church. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. Division, division, division. People were getting wasted before communion. I'm sorry, like that's, I was a frat boy, but like even we didn't do that. These guys were getting wasted before communion. And they're pushing others out of the way. Um, some were beginning to say, well, I'm not even sure that the dead in Christ will be raised. So there's like weird teaching going on. There's like an accusation of a guy sleeping with his father's mother. A father's, uh, sorry, not father's mother. Sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmom. So the church there, with all their gifts, was actually a church that was, um, had a lot of problems, both in their, what they did, but also in what they believed. They were starting to question the resurrection. And so Paul comes in strong to this church that he loves. And he says, now, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I want to remind you of the gospel. Like, there's so many things in the Bible. You could get lost in all the facts, but do you know the core thing, the main thing? And that thing is the gospel, the good news, that God came in the flesh as Jesus he was without sin. He lived his life without sin. He was handed over to sinful men who tortured him, crucified him, and he was put to death. And on the third day, just as he predicted, just as he said what happened, he was raised from the dead and he was seen by so many people. It's, it's overwhelming. We'll get to the number in a second. But that is the event, friends, the gospel, the good news. Christ died, he was buried, he was raised, and he appeared. And he says, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I... There's three things about the gospel. Number one about the gospel, I want to remind you of the gospel that I what? It's not on my face, it's in the text. I want to remind you of the gospel that I preach. Friends, there is a need to preach the word of God. I understand nobody wants people to preach at them, but there is a reason. We have to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. I was thinking of the scripture, how will they hear unless somebody comes and preaches the good news? You know, in our generation, we're so polite. We're so polite. We, it kind of runs like this. It's like, um, well, I'm just going to show them with my life. Could you make a list for me of everybody that has seen your life and rushed to the cross weeping? I mean, I'm not saying it never happens. I'm just saying if you think you're going to be so pious and so good that people are like, oh, my gosh, Jesus must be true because look at this person's life. So he says this. He says, I pass on, oh, it says the gospel must, must be preached. Do you remember that thing? He says, uh, St. Francis of Assisi, which Mother Teresa quoted, preach the gospel at all times. And when absolutely necessary, speak with words. 
Preach the gospel at all times, and when absolutely necessary, preach with words. Doesn't that sound modern? Doesn't that sound hip? Doesn't that sound very loving and affirming of us? But the reality, friends, is the gospel needs to be preached. The only reason you may know Jesus today is somebody took the command seriously to give a reason for the hope that was within them. They were not afraid of your judgment. They were willing to take the risk, present Jesus Christ, him crucified, raised from the grave. And so the gospel must be preached. What's the second thing? It must be what? I don't care if you're wide open. I don't care that I've dropped back and I'm going to zing it 60, 20 yards, 20 yards to you. You've got to do what? You've got to receive it. So the gospel not only must be preached, it has to be received. The problem is, and I get this, for 20 years I was in a church and I, I guess they were saying the gospel. I just, I never heard it. I'm not saying it was them, it was me. I never received it. I never received it. I thought, eh, that's the kind of religious stuff. I'm not really into that. I like church and all, but I don't like all that religious stuff. The gospel has to be preached, it has to be received. And then the last thing about the gospel, it says it must what? It says that you must stand in it, the truth of God's word. Once you know who Christ is, once you know the truth of his resurrection, it actually does change the way you view things, the way you view your money, the way you view your time, the way you treat other people. And so the gospel must be preached. It must be received. Have you ever received the gospel? So sad. I told my son, I said, son, honestly, uh, there are times where Easter's just not my favorite time. And he's like, oh, dad, that's terrible for a pastor to say. And I said, I know what you're saying, and I love preaching to unsaved people. And I love preaching the gospel. But what kills a pastor is when you share the gospel openly, honestly, with no spin, no hype, and that you feel like you're in a wax museum. And you're wondering, like, Lord, I know your word is uh, effective. I know your word is like a sword that pierces. And yet so often pastors see that it doesn't seem to have an effect. And I want to say today, let it have an effect on you. Don't worry about the people around you. Let's say that you hear the gospel. You know who Jesus is. You be willing to be honest with yourself and say, do I know him or not? And so the gospel, he's trying to remind the church of the gospel in which he preached it, he re- they received it, and they're standing in it. Now, then he goes on to verse 3. That, that thing's saying 25 minutes. If that's true, this is going to be one long sermon. Okay, so it says, verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance, as of first importance, I delivered to you what I also received from Jesus. You know, this is pretty important stuff. When some, it's like when the teacher says, I'm not going to tell you what's on the test, but if I were you, I'd be studying this. Do you know that? So what he's saying here is like, pay attention, 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 attention. This is the most important stuff. And I I get that, delivering what's of first importance. I was thinking about when my kids were learning to drive. Mary, I don't know if you remember this. Uh, I'd been warned by Bill Pinkerton, my friend, don't ever try to teach your own teenagers how to drive. It's just a war waiting to happen. And I don't remember which child. I'm sure it wasn't Mary Wynn. I'm sure it wasn't. It was probably another child. But anyway, we got in the car, and, and, and the, the lug nuts started to come off real quickly. Not on the car, but in what was happening between father and child. And then there was, seemed to be some debate from teenager back to the child. And I, I saw red. And I'm like, hey, when I'm in the car and you're learning to drive, I am God. Whatever I say goes. Do you understand that? But the next thing I told him of first importance is, 
you gotta know how to stop a car. You gotta know where the brake is. That's the first thing I wanna teach you. Not only that I'm in charge here, okay? But the first practical thing I'm gonna tell you is that you gotta know where the brake is so you can stop the car. Otherwise, you're gonna crash. Of first importance, I think about the president. When the president leaves office, what is, what's the custom since Ronald Reagan? What do they do? They write a letter, hopefully not like, you know, one of those. Writes a letter with some sage advice passing on to the next incoming president something they've learned while being in the crucible of being the most powerful person in the world. And, and we've seen all the presidents do it. They leave behind something of first importance. And so Paul here is saying, I want you to receive this as of first importance. And there's really four things. I got four fingers, I got four things. That Christ was what? First thing. Uh, I, this is the gospel. Okay? This is the gospel. The first thing about the gospel is that God came and what? In the flesh, and he did what? D. Starts with a D. He, he died. Number two, not only did he die in accordance with the scriptures, he also was buried. Yeah, it's always good to bury people. Um, he died, he was buried, and then something else happened. On the third day, he was what? Raised from the dead. So he, he died, he was buried, he was raised from the dead, and in accordance with the scriptures, and verse 5 says, and then he did what? He appeared. Okay, so the chances of any of you remembering that by the time you get to your car is about zero unless I give you a help. I like mnemonic devices, okay? So say this one, D-B, that was weak, D-B-R-A. D-B-R-A. We'll say it one more time so you got it, D-B-R-A. So the first one is D. And, and so you can remember the, remember the mnemonic device. Dull boys run away. Dull boys run away. I was going to say dumb boys, but then I realized that we're, that's a bad word. We're not supposed to say that word, are we, Papa Quig? So dull boys run away. Run away from the truth of the resurrection. Dull boys. That's a mnemonic. So D, according to the scriptures, the Messiah did what? He died. He died for, he, he not only died, but he died for our sins. Now, how would you know that? Like if I said, okay, that's great. Thanks for sharing that. Where in the scriptures do you see the scriptures predicting or foretelling that Messiah would die? Where do you see that? And when I see the scriptures, you got to realize that we're talking about the first 39 books, Genesis through Malachi. Okay, these were the scriptures Jesus had. New Testament had not been written yet. And so when he says it was said in the scriptures, it was according to the scriptures that Christ died for us, where would you find that? Where would you go? Isaiah. Isaiah. Were you in the first service? That's awesome. That is so awesome. Okay, so I'm going to get to Isaiah, but can we do one first? We don't even have to turn there. Think of Genesis. You know what happened in Genesis, right? There's, uh, Eve was deceived by uh, the serpent, and, right, and then judgment came to the world, right? Adam and Eve partook of the fruit that God told them not to eat of? Okay, so what happens as judgment for sin? There was judgment on Adam, on Eve, and also on the serpent. What was the judgment to the serpent? Oh, let's, I, let me turn there anyway. Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15. He's going to have to crawl on his belly, but there's something else. There's going to be a war at play now after the fall. He says... Um, the Lord God is speaking to the servant. He says, I'm going to put enmity between you, Mr. Serpent, and the woman, Eve. I'm going to put enmity or strife or division, 
or war. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And you're, Mr. Serpent, Mr. Devil, you're going to bruise, uh, no, sorry, he, meaning Messiah, shall bruise your, no, no, I got this backwards. It says, he shall bruise your head. Who's he? Help me, y'all. He shall bruise your head. He's stepping on him. Who defeated Satan? Through death and resurrection, Jesus. So he's going he's gonna, to um, He's going to step on you. He's going to bruise your head, but there's something else that's going to happen. What does it say in the next verse? And you shall bruise his heel. Now, granted, this is not so obvious that everybody goes, oh, wow, I see it. It's subtle. But the bruising of the heel is the crucifixion. There's a war between Satan and the children of men, right? Between the children of Eve. There's going to be this war, this enmity and strife. And so while the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, through the line of the woman, is going to crush Satan, he's going to crush him. Ultimately, he's going to be destroyed. But Satan is going to wound the heel of her offspring, i.e. Jesus. And so there you see it. And you had another one. Where's another place in the scriptures where you see, uh, where you see prediction or prophecy that the Messiah is going to die for our sins? Okay, we'll get there, but look at Isaiah 53. Go there really quick. It's, honestly, it's probably like the best chapter of the entire Bible. If you want to know the gospel, there it is, Isaiah 53. And what we're looking for here in Isaiah 53 is, um, did the Messiah have to die, or would the Messiah die? So let's look in verses 5 through 8. It says this. They're talking about the suffering servant, the Messiah, the Savior. It says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for this generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living? He was cut off. He was stricken. Why was he cut off? Why was he stricken? It says right there. Why? For the transgressions of my people. That's a big word. That's a big Bible word. He was cut off because of the sin of my people. Messiah is going to be cut off for the transgressions or sins of, of my people. And so you see, according to the scriptures, in Isaiah, in the Psalms, uh, you see it in other places, in Genesis, that Christ, the Messiah, was going to die for our sins. That's the gospel. What kind of God would do that? What, sorry, but what kind of God would do that? Not only would he die for our sins, DB, remember dull boys run away? DB, the, uh, the Christ, the Messiah, would what? He's going he's to die, but he's also going to be? You do it with dead people all the time. You're going to bury him. Okay, so where would you look to see from the Old Testament that Messiah is going to be buried? It's been prophesied. Isaiah 53. Look at Isaiah 53 and look down at verse 9. Very awesome, y'all. It says, and they made, they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Again, Messiah is going to be buried. It says they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Maybe one more. I'll give you a hint. People always talk about Jonah and the whale, except for that's not in the Bible. Jonah and the whale's not in the Bible. Did you know that? It's Jonah and the great fish. There's no whale. It's a great fish. Jonah's in a great fish. And in, in Jonah, it says, Jonah, when Jonah sinned and didn't obey God a big storm came up they threw him off the boat he God appoints a great big fish the fish swallows him and for three days it's the most disgusting scene in the whole bible right 
He's in the inside of a big fish's stomach. Disgusting. But what happened on the third day? Jonah says that the fish vomited him up on the land. He vomited him out. And then when we go into Matthew 12, it says, As Jonah was three days in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days in the earth. And so, friends, they're from Isaiah, they're from Jonah, reference in the New Testament. There you see Messiah will be buried. So he's going to die, he's going to be buried. Let's keep going. DBR, dull boys run away. DBR, what's R? Raised, the Messiah is going to be raised. Where would you, okay, let's go here. I know it's a lot of turning, a lot of scriptures, but go to Psalm 1610. The awesome, awesome thing about trying to find the book of Psalms is it's right in the middle of the Bible. So it's pretty easy to find. Go to Psalms. I say that. Under pressure. Somebody, somebody read out Psalms while I'm looking up another one. Psalms 1610. Okay, I'll use my phone then. Okay, so here is Psalms. It says, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that is to the grave. You're not going to abandon my soul to the grave. Or let your holy one or let your anointed one, your Messiah, see corruption. So that is proving to us from Psalms. It's subtle, but for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, there is a clear um, indication. Somebody's calling me. Don't call me now, please. Um, there's a clear indication that, that Messiah is going to be um, buried in a grave. Okay, so he's going to be raised. So that was Psalm 16. Did we go to Isaiah 53.10? Go back there, Isaiah 53.10. Again, we're looking for will Messiah be raised. Go there, Isaiah 53.10. says this. It says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, meaning Messiah, the, the suffering servant. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he has put him to grief, and when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see, future tense, he shall see his offspring, and he shall, future tense, prolong his days. And so you see here, friends, in Isaiah, you see the death, you see the burial, you see the resurrection that the Messiah was going to be raised from the dead. Even Job says it. You know what Job says. He goes, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last day, he, my Redeemer, will stand upon the earth. Job, before Jesus was born, hundreds of years, by the Spirit of God, knew that Messiah would be raised from the dead and he would live. Our God is the God of the living, not of the dead. And then, as we close this passage, Jesus appears to a lot of people. My question is, how many witnesses do you need? Do we have any attorneys here? We got one. Daniel, how many, how many witnesses do you need to prove somebody's guilty? That's a leading question, sir. How many do you need, really? One, right? We believe things all the time where there's less, than, less witnesses than the resurrection of Jesus, right? Columbus sailed the ocean blue, 1492. How do you know? Did you see it? Or you just believe it? Hmm. Man landed on the moon. I remember I was 10 years old and I was at Boy Scout camp. We woke up in the middle of the night and watched him land on the moon. There are people, I think they're crazy personally, but there are people who say that's a big lie. 
There's no proof. That was just done in Hollywood. Did you see it? How many witnesses were there to witness the landing on the moon? Not the, not the video. Anybody can make a video. They do it in Hollywood all the time. I'm just saying, we have 500 witnesses. The Bible recounts in this passage. Paul's reminding them, hey, uh, the resurrected Jesus raised from the dead appeared. He appeared first to who? To Peter. And then to all the other apostles. And then he appeared to James, the brother of the Lord. And then he said to more than 500 others, more than 500. How many witnesses do you need? Are you so smart that you know more than the people that actually walked with Jesus, that saw him and were willing to risk their life? Many of them actually were killed because they would not back down from the truth that they had seen Jesus Christ, him raised from the dead. And the the scripture ends and it says many of these 500 are still alive at the time they were writing the New Testament. And so the point being like, First of all, Jerusalem is very small. I mean, it's like maybe half of Vinton. Do you think it's that would be that hard to find the body of Jesus if he really wasn't raised from the dead? Do you think somebody wouldn't have told somebody, wouldn't have told somebody? There was money on the table, y'all. And yet they never found the body. They never found it. The grave was empty on that Easter morning. It was empty when I went there in 1983 to Israel, and it was there, what, two years ago, honey, when we went to Israel. The grave was empty. It is empty. It's going to be empty. It's always going to be empty. He's not there. Nobody can produce his body. You know why? Because like, un- unlike other religions, this is not fairy tale stuff. It's real stuff. The grave is empty. And a lot of people say, well, I just don't know if I believe in all that stuff. Well, Not to be rude to you, but let me just tell you, there are people who have IQs 30 points higher than you, that have two and three PhDs that have spent their life studying, asking the hard questions with the mind of of an attorney, brilliant people who've bent their knee to the Lord and believe that the grave is empty and that Jesus has been raised. And so, friends, as we close, the question is not whether it's true. It is true. It's true whether you believe it or not. So I was praying, I was like, Lord, I have to convince them. He goes, no, you don't. You don't have to convince them. It's true whether they will receive it or not. But I would urge you that if you've been sitting at church year after year after year, and you've never grabbed hold of the truth that Jesus was, he died, he was buried, he was raised, and he appeared. The empty grave screams to any doubt. It's still empty. The witnesses, the over 500 witnesses scream. So the the reality is it's not a problem of truth. That's fact. The problem is our willingness to bend to receive that truth and to bend our knee. My prayer, my hope for each of us is that you not be like me, live 20 years in the church. I even wore robes, was an acolyte, all that stuff, but I didn't know the Lord. I didn't believe that he, he died, he was buried, he was raised, and that he appeared. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen and amen.